Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. And good morning, Annie. G'day, Jordan. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good, good. And um, yeah, you're tuned in to uh, 3CR for Solidarity Breakfast. Um, That's exactly right. You yeah. are too. And it's a lovely day outside. Um, it's been quite uh, invigorating having uh, daylight saving uh, over and done with because it's mm. a, a suddenly you're uh, communing with nature at its proper time. Well, I was going to say assaulted with light at a time <laughs> that's way too early for me in the morning. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm getting in touch with nature again. Sure, we'll go with that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's the yeah. right of the bike rider in me, because especially if it's early in the morning, you can go as slow as you like without. Oh, uh, very true. Without feeling like uh, you're a um, incompetent bike rider. Mm. I, I will. No- I will note that there, even though the time hasn't changed, there are still a, a few more cars on the road from time to time. You know, in, in that early morning. Oh, there is. And I was thinking that it's because some jobs are actually dependent on sunrise, right? You've got security work, you've got baking jobs. So yeah, just a interesting little you know side thought there um well yeah. i'll tell you that yeah. another side thought is that uh, there's more uh, uh, dregs of uh, the previous night's uh, partying oh um, yes uh, appearing again yep. on the streets on a saturday early in the morning yep absolutely yeah. absolutely and of course we're we're quite I mean, we're on Smith Street, which is, you know, a notorious spot, obviously, but um, you can really see it coming right up uh, Victoria Parade and then you round the corner at the McDonald's and, yeah, there's there's always a couple people just sort of, you, you know, know finding loosely. their way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which means... Yeah, really that... attracted to the light bulbs, you know, inside the inside the McDonald's <laughs> Which just the means that things are getting back to normal quite clearly. Anyway, um, mm. there's a few bits of tidbits. Uh, Cappy News, uh, people may not have caught up with that uh, Chris Breen, the uh, uh, member from, of RAC, uh, Refugee Action Collective, who had been charged with incitement uh, over a uh, car rally that they uh, called in April last year, which is such a long time ago, um, in fact, a year ago, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, was uh, thrown out of court uh, at the magistrate's court, which is great news. Mm. And uh, we will catch up with that, uh, the in- ins and outs. They were, they were talking about the idea that whoever was, um, was successful in the 
the uh, case that either side would take it to appeal. So I wonder if the police have taken it to appeal because it was the police who ch- mm. uh, uh, who were the prosecutors, you know, the ones who made the charge. Yeah, so. absolutely. And um, I think extending that as well, I remember we'd, we'd been covering this for quite a while and there was always one question that kept reappearing was, you know, would it be a precedent case? Yeah. And, I mean, there's still a lot to unpack from this, but the good news is that the case was thrown out um, where to from here? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So we'll find out. We'll, we'll, we'll find out more of the details of that. Mm. Uh, there was also something that happened up at Kangaroo Point in, uh, in regards to the refugees. Uh, apparently uh, on Friday, the uh, police and Serco officers forcibly re- uh, moved the remaining Medibac refugees in the Kangaroo Point Hotel in Brisbane, immig- uh, to the Brisbane Immigration Detention Centre and the uh, activists who have been, uh, or the community that had been protesting outside uh, Kangaroo Point, mm. um, the hotel there, had uh, were, were, were preparing to do a rally outside to commemorate the one-year uh, uh, anniversary of the uh, placement of the Medivac uh, refugees in that mm. facility. Uh, they say we don't want any more transfers between detention centres. Everyone should be released. Uh, That's Ian Rindall, spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it did follow the release of a Somali uh, refugee, uh, Saf, into the community to his family, which is a positive. However, there's still, of course, people who are caught up in this yeah. crazy, crazy system. Yeah, I think it, it really actually speaks to it in, in this story, how they did the move about an hour or two before there was going to be a significant gathering right at the front of the detention centre. You know, they, it was like they had no other opportunity and they just decided to wedge it in as fast as they could before it wasn't going to be possible. You know, it really just... It just dinks of dominance, you know. Um, Yeah, I've got my own little uh, news piece, if you want to go ahead with that now as well. So um, I was having a skim through some old course. Before we do, Mm -hmm. I'll remind you about something that's on the similar vein locally. Hmm. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're all back here with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast, mm. and um, you've got some news. Yeah, so I, I guess on, on, on my front, I was having a bit of a dig through some uh, related union and activity, and um, one piece that I actually picked up from the UWU, curiously enough, was that uh, ExxonMobil is planning a closure of, a, of another oil refinery, uh, which is in Altona, 
in Melbourne, of course. Um, the facility first opened in the 1950s, and there's about 350 workers there. Um, this is pretty rich, given that the company itself has been propped up with uh, oil refining subsidies, several billions of dollars of them as well, for quite a while now. Um, but it's interesting that, yeah, I, I first picked this up through the UWU and um, the National Secretary, uh, Kim, Tim Kennedy, was talking about this Altona announcement, um, saying that, you know, there need to be an orderly closure. Um, it was a terrible missed opportunity to invest in um, a just transition and, and, and quality jobs for the future. Um, but of course, there was a couple of other groups that picked up on this as well. So there was the MUA, um, which was the uh, sorry, the Maritime Union of Australia. Um, that, that's still a division of the CFM. Well, no, they amalgamated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The okay, CFMMEU. Cool. Yes, of course. Uh, also, the the thing that uh, the MUA have been pushing for quite a long time. They've got a campaign about. Uh, Fuel security in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Because there was another closure a little while back from BP up in Quinana, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I, I guess it's slowly coming to, it's, it's coming to the front that, um, yeah, the, these these refinery closures are just becoming more frequent, um, which it's it's a little disappointing to see. Um, obviously, negotiating. Fuel subsidies um, alongside, you know, a guarantee of fuel in the energy market. It really is that we need to see some proper just transition. And you know, we've got we've got so many shows advocating for this in particular. Well, uh, no, it's interesting yeah. because there, I mean, it actually brings in a whole lot of things into uh, discussion points. Uh, but uh, it does bring to mind this interesting thing that happened not very long ago, which was uh, an increase in tax for electric cars. Mm. I know that sounds like an oblique uh, connection, but... Uh, no, no, it's absolutely spot on, yeah. Yeah, you wonder yeah. what the actual... I mean, the electric car market in Australia, according to the um, session that I went to to listen to about the electric car, because I'm was quite i quite interested in this, mm. um, because they keep talking about tra- just transition and they keep talking about us uh, turning, turning our back on uh, fossil fuels, but mm. uh, what's really happening in the ground? on the ground and uh, it's a very small relatively small market in Australia but in some some Scandinavian countries it's absolutely huge like Mm. they've got a a, they're really on track for almost 100 I mean 100 uh, percent switch oh yeah absolutely yeah and so that has included uh, infrastructure right across their countries and stuff like that Mm. but they've got much smaller populations and they've got much smaller uh, uh, distances but that's neither here nor there in relation to the role the government plays in order to make this actually happen. Mm. So the session that I was involved in was actually, uh, they were discussing why is our government creating systems that are actually uh, um, reducing the... uh, uh, incentive mm. to be, to go towards electric cars. Oh, oh, and yeah, also, I mean, why are they closing refineries? Uh, why are, look, why are they uh, sending off our gas to uh, other countries while wanting to import it mm. here? Uh, so the whole policy array around um, energy energy is very confused. Of course, of course, it's been like that for a while. Um, yeah, all all of Australia's oil refineries, in a global sense, are quite aged and inefficient. Um, I won't dither on this too much.
much more because it looks to be pretty much secured for now. Um, and of course, we offer solidarity with those workers in particular. But um, this would mean that there's only two left, two refineries left in Australia. There would be Ampol in Lytton, Queensland, which has absolutely no intention of staying open. They've made that clear for the longest period of time now. Um, and then there's also Viva Energy in Geelong. Um, Which is also under three. Yes, but they've still accepted an interim refinery production payment, which is one cent per litre of production from the federal government, um, which apparently translated to about $30 million in the first half of 2021. That's conditional on the refinery staying open only until July 2021. So honestly... We're probably not going to have any oil refineries in Australia within the next three or four years. Yeah, what's the plan? And, I mean, you just feel like this massive stash of money has just been flushed down the toilet without any semblance of a future plan. Oh, and also I suppose it shows you the um, connection that the federal government, this federal government, has with uh, corporations Mm. because they obviously believe that the plan that the corporations have in their boardrooms is far more important, uh, well, more sensible than national interest. Mm. Precisely. We're going to go now to your uh, interview, uh, well, the session that was held at Marxist conference. Yes, absolutely. So I, um, oh, we're still pulling out some pieces from Marxism, which was well, uh, which is lovely. Oh, look, there's so much to talk about. Of course, um, I went along and um, got some great audio from this one particular talk, which was delivered from a variety of lecturers working in the tertiary sector. But um, you'll hear next week from Dr. Olashogu, who was a oh, sorry is a, a lecturer from Nigeria. Um, but this week. Uh, we have Faisi Ishmael, who was speaking from the UK, and I think, very very briefly, I think you'll see a lot of parallels with the tertiary sector and the issues of it in the UK, as you do here. So, take a listen. Our next speaker is uh, Faisi Ishmael, who's worked at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, in London since 2014, and who has been part of building renewed militancy in their union uh, and effective industrial action particularly in relation to a couple of issues that we're very familiar with here in Australia and I'm sure internationally, and it sounds like outsourcing, compulsory redundancies, casualization. And so we're excited to hear Faisi's thoughts on all of that. Welcome, Faisi Ishmael. Thanks, Ros, and thanks to Katie for the invitation to speak uh, at Marxism this year. As Rose was saying, I've, I've actually taught at SOAS for, for 10 years. Um, and during the pandemic, I actually lost my job. I've now, I'm now doing most of my teaching. Well, actually for the last four years, uh, because I've been on casualized contracts for about 10 years. Um, I've been working at Goldsmiths. That's where I do most of my teaching. And comparatively speaking, uh, these two are two of the most radical universities, um, in the country, or at least they have the reputation of being such and there have been major strikes and campaigns at these institutions for more than a decade and the first thing to say is the the marketization of higher education in the UK it this took a leap forward in 2010 when the conservative government came to power and this has been devastating for the sector it's really 
weakened our working conditions. It's affected learning conditions. Obviously, the, the tripling of tuition fees, a sort of marker of the arrival of this government and its impact on higher education. There was, and they have also attacked our pay, pension, workload has has gone through the roof, and of course, casualization is now absolutely rampant throughout the sector. So the whole sector has massively shifted, including actually the types of courses that are taught. You know, there's now a massive preference for those courses that are profitable. And of course, those are centered on STEM subjects, you know, science, science, technology, medicine and so on. Um, and being taken away from more critical courses, you know, courses that, that yeah, just aren't seen as, as profitable, um, including media and, and, and things like that. And I mentioned media because I'm, I'm now in a media department at, um, at Goldsmiths and it's the equivalent of, you know, millions and millions of, of pounds taken away from these types of courses, humanities and so on. Um, so there's a great deal of disillusionment in the sector, but there's also more or less been a fight back since um, 2010. So it's gen- uh, the, this kind of fight back is generally on the rise. But of course, the state of university organizing has been mixed. Our union, the University and College Union, UCU, has changed leadership in the past couple of years. And this has been positive um, on the whole. But we are lacking at the national level the kind of leadership that's needed to really confront this marketization. We've been on strike twice over the past three years since 2018, which is an achievement in itself, given the anti-trade union laws, one of which is that each UCU branch has to have a 50% voter turnout for any strike action. That wasn't there a few years ago. But the strikes in themselves have not been able to secure yet the kind of results that we want. We have had some gains. And of course, there have been strikes at individual universities over compulsory redundancies and so on. Last year, we were on a national strike over what we called the four fights, an increase in pay, uh, eliminating the race and gender pay gaps, addressing workload and putting in place a framework for addressing casualization. And there was also a separate ballot over pensions. And when the pandemic broke out, most university managements across the country almost predictably used the situation to argue that universities are in massive financial crisis. The forecast was that student numbers would massively decline and they would be unable to avoid substantial job cuts cuts in administration, cuts in general. And it turned out that most universities recruited far far higher than expected. You know, I mean, at SOAS, for example, they were modeling the cuts on a 50% drop in student numbers, when in reality, several departments across the university actually over-recruited. And Goldsmiths, the situation was the same. You know, they said we have to make massive cuts because of the pandemic. And actually, the numbers in many departments held. And although, of course, it was uneven, you know, I'm sure it was uneven at at many universities. It also revealed 
you know, where management was at. They were trying to use the pandemic to, you know, restructuring that they wanted to make, you know, prior to the pandemic. Um, I mean, and you, you, you can see where they're at. Last year, Goldsmiths Management spent £800,000 on a KPMG report that told us nothing new, partly because it was using figures that were quickly outdated. Never mind that KPMG should have nothing to do whatsoever with running any university. The cleaners campaign at SOAS, which has been fighting since 2006. They initially started with uh, what they called the three fights, the three cosas. It's in Spanish because uh, much of the workforce is, is Spanish. Um, and the three fights were over minimum wage, pensions and sick pay. And they won those fights. They won those things. And after 2015, the Justice for Cleaners campaign was transformed into the Justice for Workers campaign. And the whole thing was about uh, reversing outsourcing. So bringing in-house um, the cleaners, but as well security guards and people in catering and so on. They won that as well after, well, a relentless and very vibrant campaign amongst the uh, the cleaners led by the union. They have a different union, uh, which is Unison, a very, very vibrant campaigning union and a, and a series of, of strikes, but also very much trying to get academics on board, students on board, and so on. Um, and two sort of more more immediate things were that the students occupied the university in 2017 over bringing the cleaners in-house. The second one was out of that occupation, they uh, secured uh, uh, an agreement from the university to produce an alternative report, which would eventually show that, in fact, outsourcing was not more cost effective than bringing the cleaners in-house because the school had always maintained that it's it's more cost effective. And actually, they had uh, got this report commissioned by an independent body and it showed that, in fact, um, it's not uh, more cost effective. So they've got better conditions. But now, since the pandemic and the restructuring, the school has cut 40% of the cleaning staff budget during a pandemic. And when uh, last year they threatened strike action, again, 75% in, in favor of strike action on a 72% turnout, management backed down um, and they comprehensively withdrew uh, the planned uh, compulsory redundancies for, for these um, uh, administrative staff across the board, so cleaning, catering, security, library, and so on. Um, so that was, you know, that was a real um, victory last year. You know, as I say, this has been a combination of, uh, of campaigning, having meetings, organizing, uh, communicating about the campaign and the strike, getting students involved. And we've done that uh, really at a, at, a, at a local level. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and me, Jordan, on 3CR 855 AM. We are halfway through a talk delivered at Marxism 2021 by Faisi Ishmael. Uh, she's working at the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS for short, since 2014, and it's a tertiary institution located in London. She's been a huge part in building renewed militancy in her union and here she discusses issues within the tertiary sector in the United Kingdom. I'm sure you'll see the same parallels with the Australian sector that I do. Enjoy. The other campaign that I've been um, much more heavily involved in casual is the anti-casualization campaign. We call them fractionals uh, at SOAS because we have fractions of full-time 
positions. This is a campaign that started in, in 2014 out of a survey that reviewed masses of unpaid labor. I mean, people working for, you know, effectively two pounds an hour um, when you, when you, you know, add up all your, all your, all your um, hours of work versus how much you're getting paid. Um, and we went on an unofficial marking boycott, a, a sort of a wildcat marking boycott in 2014 and 2017. And by 2017, we, we saw some victories. We got, you know, our marking taken out of the multiplier that we had. Um, we got payment for, for compulsory training that we needed to take and we got a, a funding pot for conferences and so on. Um, so th- those were, those were things that allowed the campaign to, to really build on, on those victories. But the situation has, has changed actually in the last kind of seven years. Um, since then in that casualization is becoming even more entrenched across the university sector. Uh, people are kind of languishing on, on fractional and fixed term contracts for years and years on end. They never get security. You know, the, the restructurings in a way are targeted at, uh, fractional staff because some of them who have moved up in the sense of, They've got some pay. They they are seen as almost, you know, they're, they're seen as the first ones to go. I've been involved in this campaign and, and fighting for permanency because there's a law in the country where after four years of being on a fixed term contract, you should by law be made permanent. And universities find all sorts of ways to get around um, this law. And my my this fight for permanency became quite a public campaign, you know, it was in the papers and so on. Um, over the last um, uh, three years, there was lots of support, students mobilizing and so on. And I also had a, a sort of um, a legal uh, fight through the union. You know, I got, pro- <laughs> I mean, all sorts of things happened, um, but then it, it, it didn't work. I mean, I had all the um, sort of support that I could have had, um, legal you know, public support and so on, all sorts of trade union leaders and so on uh, supported me and still I didn't win, um, which, which, is, which is quite an, a, an astonishing thing. And it shows you how universities can just use um, loopholes in the law to, to get around this. I mean, I even got a promotion after they had uh, got rid of me, <laughs> after my contract um, had ended, which, which sort of shows that, you know, Whatever you do in a in a in a casualized contract, you know universities will find ways. Yeah, that's just to say that um, it's not easy. And out of that, um, most recently last year, we at SOAS we put together what we call a collective grievance. So we took the whole kind of situation of all the fractional staff in the university and said, this has been going on for more than a decade. It's entrenched in the culture uh, of SOAS, and we demand that management um, do something about it. We, we, I mean, we held our own public hearing, but we're now seeking a hearing through the school's uh, processes. So we're quite sort of serious about, about addressing this. You know, UCU has also had their own uh, you know, as a result of compulsory redundancy, the threat of compulsory redundancies, their own strike ballot. Now we couldn't make the threshold as UCU, but you know there has been there has been mobilisation. But I think one thing that's been important um, is is the sort of coordination ac- across these campaigns and and unions at SOAS. So the Unison, UCU, and the Students Union 
kind of organizing together. So the, the fractionals issue is a, is, a, is a campaign. It's not a separate union, but we organize. So we organize both independently and with the UCU. Been, you know, it's been important kind of coordinating to get students involved, to get cleaners involved. So whenever we have strikes or our campaigns where we're getting, you know, public meetings and so on, we get everybody there. We try and get as much representation from different constituencies as possible. We have a lot of joint meetings and school-wide meetings and so on. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the sort of barriers have often come down to kind of students and staff not feeling confident to take action or, or thinking that, you know, maybe those issues, these issues don't, don't affect them. Um, during the UCU strike last year, it was really important to get students and, and professional staff um, involved in the picket lines to make them lively, to have teach outs, um, communicating with everyone very regularly. With the pandemic, We've had to obviously move a lot of that on, on online. Um, we've had virtual pickets. One of these, um, one of the things that we've done at Goldsmiths, um, for example, is um, is to have a, a virtual picket. And on our Twitter feed, we we reached uh, two and a half million people actually in in the last um, in the last virtual picket. Now at Goldsmiths, very briefly, and I'll and I'll end with this. Um, we um we did reach um a ballot so again situation is very similar they've got we've got 120 redundancies on the table senior management want to make six million pounds worth of um worth of cuts just to staff costs of course we know very well who bears the brunt of these costs again it's the casualized staff it's women of color it's early career academics um and we did make the threshold at SOAS, the 50% threshold, but we opted for act, what's called action short of a strike. So this was a marking boycott. And actually, in many cases, um, something like a marking boycott can be more effective um, at a you know at a certain period. And it came out actually of um people on fixed-term contracts, myself included. Um, going on a wildcat marking boycott um, last year. So what we had on the table last year was they were going to cut 472 casualized staff. Hundreds did go. They they cut. They managed to cut 900,000 pounds out of the casualized staff budget, and they did it. Um, hundreds of staff went. My job was saved uh, partly because my heads of department were were fighting for you know, the, the few casualized staff in our department. We did go on this marking boycott and then the union balloted and then we made that marking boycott official. So now uh, we're now entering our 13th week of an official uh, marking boycott. And, you know, with a marking boycott, there's also a natural escalation. So we're in our 13th week, exams are coming up, management is hopefully freaking out. We've had rallies of you know, we've had a rally a couple of weeks ago of over 200 people. We've had two recent branch meetings of over 150 people where we voted to reject management's offer. So we wanted our initial demand was two years of no compulsory redundancies, protection of the what we call now associate lecturers, they're the casual staff, protection of that budget and a full equalities impact assessment and so on. And they came back with an offer of one year of no compulsory redundancies, um, protecting 95% of the uh, AL budget and doing a full equalities impact assessment. And we had a branch meeting last week and we voted to reject that offer. And we're talking, you know, overwhelming rejection, like 83% of, of people have voted now twice to reject these offers and propose um, counter offers. 
and it, it should be said, you know, Goldsmiths, we, we did, they, they, they also um, had a restructuring plan last year and that was defeated. They then came back, uh, repackaged this restructuring and presented it to us as a sort of what they call the recovery framework. But there's a real kind of mood, I think, at Goldsmiths. The challenge now is how to mobilize. The, that comes off the back of um, a vote of no confidence in, in senior management, which was 87 percent of the of the academic staff voted no confidence in management, which is a, which is a huge thing. But management is also very, very belligerent and they may very well come down very hard on us they may have strike breakers they may do all sorts of things they may just start threatening to dock pay and and, and whatnot so none of this is easy but as i'm as i say you know it's really important for us to have a, a kind of campaigning union so it isn't just left to activists to pick up these things um and that you know everyone kind of sees this strike and, and the action sort short of the strike as their own um and if they were able to trust that the union was at the national level was strong and confident, then I think that would really, you know, that, that, that they were able to really fight back against government and, and, and the employers, they would be, people would be more likely to strike across all universities because they would sense a sort of potential for victory. So what in the, in the absence of a kind of strong union at the national level we're we're really taking this fight um at in individual uh, individual branches at individual universities and trying to um yeah grow our movement um that way thank you so much Faisy. free west papua free before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan culture, history, and struggle. Launch party, Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. And exhibitions of archival photos from West Papua, pre-Indonesian occupation, cultural activists, and contemporary art by West Papuan artists. Lobe Wangai, Jeffrey Jikwa, and other members of West Papuan community here in Melbourne. Traditional West Papuan food from Joyce Kitchen and music from the Sego and Jill Kogoya. Join us for the opening night for food, music and dance at Basement Gallery, Collingwood Yards, 35 Johnston Street, Collingwood. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. Or a few exhibitions Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Collingwood Yards. Before the genocide, find us on Facebook. A 3CR supporter. Free West Papua Free Free West Papua Free Yeah Free West Papua Free Oh Free West Papua Free Ah, and you're back with Jordan and Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. That's a fascinating... You're right about the uh, correlations between what's going on in uh, England and Australia in regards to tertiary education mm. and the demise. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think it'll be even more fascinating to compare it with um, uh, Solidarity Breakfast for next week, as well as um, uh, Dr. Ola Shogood's piece as well. So, uh, you about know... Nigeria. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, tune in next week if you want to keep comparing. <laughs> I mean, who, who who would have thought that in Nigeria that, what is it, how many months were they on strike? Nine months. Wow, there you go. That's... Through, through the pandemic as yeah. well. So, yeah. oh, they, they were doing teach-outs. Um, they were arming some of the union members. I mean, it was it was full on. Um, yeah, exciting stuff. I won't spoil it anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> the future. I, I, got a, I caught up with yeah. Steve Jolly, uh, the independent socialist uh, 
uh, councillor on the Yarra Council because mm. there was news uh, recently around a social housing project which was kiboshed by the Yarra Council, by the uh, Five Greens councillors, which is fascinating. Uh, it caused uh, uh, Richard Wynne, who is from... Uh, Oh, I'm getting a telephone call. <laughs> well, oh, I haven't got I haven't got a chance to turn it off, so it'll have to stop by itself. Yeah, but anyway, I talked to Stephen Jolly about uh, about this, and I also talked to him a little bit about something that's reached my radar, which is the increase in uh, charges for sporting facilities that are uh, community uh, council run. And for the community, but uh, around uh, Melbourne, you may have noticed it yourself. There's been pushes, a push to increase the costs of um, sporting facility. Uh, yes, we were discussing this off air last week. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, I was asking his opinion about that. But anyway, let's hear what uh, Steve had to say about uh, uh, the stoush, the uh, social housing stoush. And then a little bit about increases in uh, fees, which was stymied at Yarra. So uh, we'll hear his view on the matter. Well, there's a couple of things. I was very interested in uh, the report that uh, there was some uh, stoush between the Labor Victorian Labor government and the Yarra Council over uh, what the... Um, government wants to do with, in terms of social housing uh, on some land that's near the uh, Collingwood Town Hall. But, of course, Yarrow's got a different idea about the uh, space. Do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah. Um, uh, I think everybody on the left supports public housing, wants better public housing, refurbished public housing, but also wants more public housing so that we can eat into the public housing waiting list. And the state government... That's their responsibility. It's under the 1983 Housing Act in Victoria. And everybody in state politics, but also everybody in terms of activists, in terms of councils, advocate for more public housing and better public housing. Um, councils can't do public housing, but we can advocate for more public housing. So then the question becomes, do we just leave it at that and just advocate for more public housing? Or do we do what we can do at a local level to try and ease the pain for poor people in terms of the housing crisis. So, for example, at a local level, councils approve thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of uh, private apartments for developers every year. That goes through the local councils. Um, and um, uh, all the political parties on the left, like the Greens, the Victorian Socialists, myself um, as an independent socialist at the moment, and, 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 and even sometimes the Labour Party, argue for inclusion rezoning that in all these private units, there should be a percentage of low-cost housing, which is social housing. It's not as good as public housing. It's slightly more expensive, but it's better than private housing. It means that low-paid workers can afford to live in the city. So um, that's what we have here. We have a piece of council land that with the huge amount of money that the state government are, are providing with the housing bills because of the stimulus package, $5.3 billion, we wanted to get that. And with a development that would have had a thousand square meters of community open space, of community facilities, I should say, with no net loss of community open space, it would have had 50 percent social and affordable housing, which would have been an Australian record. And um, we're really excited about that. Um, would have put the heat on other councils to follow suit, and hundreds of people in this area and in other councils areas would have had houses and units in the inner city that they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to live in. People who clean our toilets. In the hospitals, people who service our beer and 
coffee in the you know pubs and milk bar in the, and cafes of, of Yarra and, what, and all the rest of it. Um, unfortunately, the, the council voted. The majority of the council voted not to accept this offer, um, and the whole thing's fallen down, and that's the end of it. So I'm pretty sad about it, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, I think it's a lost opportunity because we can't do it on our own because the council don't have the money for it. But with this COVID money from the state government, we could have done it. Um, and now the land's just going to sit there idle. But what I worry about is a future council, a more right-wing council, could just sell the whole lot off to a private developer and we could get 100% private units. Well, it said that uh, uh, the council had other ideas about that they wanted to develop it for, uh, what is it, for community amenities. Yeah, there was, there was talk, I mean, the people who opposed the plan, um, the majority on the council are the, are the five Greens, there's nine councils, there's five being the majority, plus one right-wing independent um, who, who voted with them, they said they had a better option, that they could get 100% social housing and so on, and that was sort of like an excuse to vote against it. But once, once they won that vote and they voted down the, the offer that was on the table, um, their uh, allegedly better option dissipated into nothingness. And, um, in fact, in the draft budget that was tabled at Yarra Council a couple of days ago um, for the community consultation, um, all we've got is $150,000 uh, spend on a consultant. Um, and, and officers to look at a feasibility study for the area. So they actually don't have a plan at all. They've spent 150k of our money on yet another study um, on on something that's never actually going to happen. Um, the plan that they sort of half our sort of put to council would have cost 21 million dollars just to get started. We don't have the money for that. Uh, we're not getting the state money now because we knocked back the offer, as Richard Green announced in the Age uh, two weeks ago. So. Um, yeah, the whole thing, the whole thing is over and stuffed, you know. So it's it's uh, it's a defeat, um, and um, I'm pretty sad about it. Yeah, it, it uh, gives some strength to your uh, uh, concern that it might be actually about uh, making the land available to private developers. Well, at the moment, um, the land is just sitting there. Um, it's not like, for example. It's public housing and we want to replace it with social housing because we would never do that because public housing should always be um, maintained, improved and expanded, not the opposite. It's what you've got there is relatively disused land. You've got the soldiers' cellar site, which is a derelict site, can't be used. You've got a, um, um, a little bit of an open space that it's hardly ever used. You've got a very underutilised art gallery, um, pri- private house and, and so on. And it's like... You know, it, it doesn't get much through traffic because it's right on Hoddle Street. Um, it's not somewhere that you would take the dog or your kids to play in the park, so to speak. Um, and it's an ideal spot for this type of development. And um, we have thousands of young, mainly young people, workers, you know, who work in our cafes and bars and restaurants, who work in our hospitals, cleaning them as nurses and so on, who are absolutely vital to the local economy, but could never in a million years afford the high rents in the private rental market. They could also not qualify for public housing because they've actually got jobs. So social housing for them is the one way that they can live in this area. Now this opportunity is being denied, at least on this site, and um, that's the end of that. Well, Richard Richard Rin is actually the state uh, member for around that area, and he's saying that they won't be able to work with the Yarra Council. Well, you know, not, not surprisingly, um, you know, uh, both sides of the political divide in the inner city, the Greens and Labour Party are going to have a crack at each other over everything really. So when the, when, the, when the Greens said no, which I think was partially because they want to have a clear line between themselves and the Labour Party for the state election, and when the Labour Party came with this housing bill, instead of just owning it and saying you're only doing this because we put the pressure on you on housing prices and 
you know, owning owning the housing bill themselves and saying, you know, we're responsible for you spending this money. In the same way a union claims credit when a boss increases your wages after a strike, after a successful strike, the union claims credit for that victory, correctly so. That's what the Greens should have done. And then on the other hand, it's quite obvious, once the Green Council says no to, um, to, the, to, to this plan, it's quite obvious the Labour Party will then jump up and down and say, oh, we're going to, we, you know, this is what the Greens do and they're going to, you know, they're no good and we're not going to work with them. And the whole thing just gets all politicised. But that, that's the nature of the beast. What's really sad is that we had an opportunity to build homes for poor people, for poor, you know, low-paid low uh, workers in the inner city, and we've blown it. Um, yeah. And that's what that's what really annoys me. Yeah, and these opportunities don't come very much for along, especially in in late capitalism, that we have a whole chunk of you know tens of millions of dollars potentially of that 5.3 billion that we could have got for this you know um, uh, development. These opportunities are extremely rare uh, in the 21st century. Yeah, and there was something else I wanted to ask you about. I'm, um, there was a talk about the. Uh, raising of the uh, rates of, for the use of sporting facilities in Yarra. And I know that it was defeated. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this is because there seems to be this movement across councils in uh, municipal councils in Melbourne to raise the cost of use of public sporting facilities beyond the use of ordinary community groups. Is that something that you've been noticing? Yeah, definitely. And and when council have a financial crisis um, and COVID didn't help any council in Victoria or Australia, that's obvious. Um, instead of kicking up, they kick down. You know, the way I look at it, if council's got a bit of a black hole, then we should be hitting up the state government for a chop out. We should be saying to the state government, council provide vital services to people. We've taken a huge hit from COVID. We need you to chop us out. We should also be hitting up the developers Yarra is full of cranes, you know, high-rise development taking place all over the joint, in Cremorne and South Collingwood in particular, but all over. We should be hitting up the developers for even more than what they're giving now. The last thing we should be doing is kicking down and stealing the piggy bank of community sports clubs. There's 8,000 mainly young people play sport in Yarra in over 50 clubs in all types of sports. And, um, and they're run by volunteers, mums and dads, pa- parents, carers, um, and... Um, where they do have a few dollars left over, often a lot of the clubs, for example, Collingwood Basketball Club, they have scholarship programs for kids, um, Asian and African kids, very, very um, underprivileged kids from the public housing estate in Collingwood who, would, who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to pay to join a club um, and play in a team. Um, now they can because the profits that are made by the club are used to, you know, to have scholarships for these kids. The council taking that money off the... Um, off the clubs um, because they're too scared to kick up um, is a disaster specifically and especially for kids on the high rise who want to play sport and that's not good for anybody not in terms of public health not in terms of social cohesion um, it's 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 really bad and it's, to have a green council wanting to do this i was really surprised about at the moment um, the wave of opposition is that the council have withdrawn the proposal but they may well come back for a second bite of the cherry i'm not sure if they will or not, if they won't but if they do, I think the sports clubs are ready to uh, to fight to fight the, this um, what essentially is a neoliberal attack on community sport. Yeah, it's it's slightly crazy considering you know all that stuff about life being it and uh, the need for people to actually be uh, active. It's really strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks very much for talking to me about these two no, key issues. 
Oh, thanks a lot, mate. You're my favourite show on 3CR, and um, th- thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. Thanks, mate. Bye. See you, mate. up this morning wondering why I was so poor Didn't have no money to step outside the door So I wandered downtown into the stock exchange Told the boys there that I sure would like to change I said I want to be a right winger now I don't like socialists no how I'll study real hard to be an MBA. I'll vote neocon till I'm in my marble grave. Well, they looked at me funny and laughed out loud a lot. Someone muttered something nasty about a leopard changing spots. But I said I'd be back with a new haircut and suit. They gave me a hundred bucks and they said I was real cute. Said I want to be a right winger now I want to have a Rosedale house I'll drive my Porsche around with a cell phone in my hand I'll hang with rich men's daughters in the best clubs in the land Well, I walked to Harry Rosen's to buy me that new suit They looked me up and down and they gave me the boot I yelled, I have a hundred from the stock exchange. They handed me a necktie and 50 cents change. I said, I want to be a right winger now. I'm going to make my mark somehow. They said, here's a broom. You can sweep the men's room. But don't talk to the gentleman. Your speech is much too rude. Sadder, wiser man is standing here tonight. They don't want me in their clubs, and that MBA's a crime. The girls up at Holtz threw me out into the street. When I sat on the curb, that Porsche squashed my feet. Now I wanna bring those right wingers down. They know nothing more than scorn and put downs. They got no brains, they got no sense, just a big fat inheritance Their daddy stole from your daddy and his pals They got no brains, they got no sense, just a big fat inheritance Their daddy stole from your daddy and his pals This is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. Renowned surf coast musician and artist Red White and his band of nearly 20 years, Ink Factor, with their swampy, psyched-out, surf-punk sounds, launch their new album, Soup Du Jour, on Friday the 30th of April at the Barwon Club in Geelong, with special guests, the Hibernators and the Quick Sixes. Tickets through barwonclub.ostix.com.au
Inked Factor launching Soup Du Jour on Friday the 30th of April at the Barlam Club Geelong. For more info, go to facebook.com forward slash Inked Factor. Inked Factor and Red White are proud supporters of 3CR Grassroots Community Radio. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo, must be regretting his angry, feigned or otherwise, angry attack on former head postmistress Christina Holgate, the Holgate Affair, after her latest appearance before a Senate committee has exposed the secret plan to privatise the profitable parts of the service and close down most of the remainder. Secret? Hardly. The Postal Union predicted ages ago the change of name of the parcel delivery section, a raising Trubaluazi post from the title, was the first move in handing it over to the super-efficient private sector. And from a business point of view, it makes real sense. You have a highly profitable division which can subsidise the other division, male, for which you have a social licence, so you hive off the profit and leave yourself with the losses. Brilliant. It's called economic rationalism. Recommended by a totally neutral Boston consulting private sector profits group, which would have no vested interest in recommending a highly profitable government service should be made efficient. And the government would have chosen them for their neutrality. And after all, this leaked out thanks to Scuttlebem's parliamentary outburst. She will no longer be true blue Aussie post-supremo on my watches. Uh, don't you mean watch? Watchers. The Minister for Privatising Government Profit, Paul Fetcher Pittance, said Christina Holgate was wrong, but he had never wanted to privatise the profit. And the Boston Profits Report was just a report. He wasn't even sure why it was commissioned in the first place, and he, he has no intention of privatising the parcels leaving us to look forward to his reasoning, or what passes as reasoning, when he announces his change of mind. Thursday, big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs ruled out any imminent privatisation. Uh, imminent, Josh. Well, certainly not over the weekend. A couple of Socialist Party backbenchers who were around when their lot privatised Qantas and the Commonwealth Bank attack the government for even thinking of privatising a profitable government enterprise. So obviously they must have seen the light over the years, or, or otherwise people might suggest they're hypocrites, or just members of parliament. Pick the difference. Twenty years after an attack by a gang of Saudis led the US of the UN of the US of the world to retaliate by invading Afghanistan, that bit's never been quite explained. The, the US of is planning to pull out of Afghanistan, having succeeded in achieving 20 years of slaughter, murder, destruction, killing and being killed, leaving Afghanistan much as it found it. Well, less a few million people, thanks to the killing and being killed bit. So we asked True Blue Aussie's new Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, whether True Blue Aussie, a proud acolyte in the coalition of the killing, would therefore also withdraw. Uh, the decision has, like, you know, like, been, you know, taken that we will, like, you know, like, withdraw. Uh, taken in Canberra. Uh, no, no, obviously, like, you know, Washington. Speaking of a pain in the, after telling us the jab, four million by a few weeks ago, is painless, doesn't hurt, poor old Scuttlebem has discovered the jab can be quite painful after all. 
still it's revealed the competence, which clearly also saw him thrown out of his previous jobs as scuttled them from marketing. Those four million jabs promised for a month ago now possibly in with a chance by Christmas. Presume they mean next Christmas. But displaying his leadership qualities, scuttled them will now meet with state supremos twice a week. It's up to them. He went to the wash basin in a brilliant Pontius Pilate gesture. The buck stops in state capitals. Thirty years ago, government told us while Trublowozzi had learned its lesson from the deaths in custody report, and thank goodness they did make the improvements and adopt the recommendations, for we can but imagine what the rates of death in custody and rates of incarceration of the Terranullius people would be today if they hadn't heeded the disturbing document. So obviously the problem must lie with the Terranullius people themselves and not with the wise governments which so care for them. On one death in custody, the U.S. say in the U.S. a retired, uh, sorry, copper called by the defence in the George Floyd trial counted lots of other coppers who conceded the killer's actions were dangerous and not part of police training or procedure. We'll we'll have to take their word for that. But this retired copper said it was part of procedure, was most definitely not dangerous, and direct quote, it's a control technique. Uh, which might indicate it is part of training, but we'll let that one slide. It's a control technique, he said with a straight face. It doesn't hurt. Uh, now, we know coppers are stupid, but it doesn't hurt. The poor bastard's dead. So apparently he died painlessly. To celebrate the ongoing trial just down the road, another white copper pulled out her taser and killed another black, proving again that driving your car is a criminal offence. Or no, no, it's a capital offence. And yeah, yeah, we know coppers are stupid, but even they should be capable of telling the difference between a taser and a gun. Mistaken identity? A convenient mistake or not so mistaken? The most depressing thing about the wall-to-wall ad infinitum coverage of the demise of a 99-year-old British doll bludger is, imagine how unbearable it's going to be when she goes off. Suppose the best we can say as tribute is that at least that's one less mouth for the British taxpayer to feed, even if recently he probably wasn't eating too much. Just a pity his grandkids keep churning out hungry little mouth after hungry little mouth. The most touching tribute came from Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head, who eulogised that the old doll bludger, quote, never complained that life was tough. <laughs> Gee, wonder why? Tough. Wish the usual suspect had given us an explanation of just what bit of life as a doll bludger living in your collection of castles and palaces is tough. Bet there's plenty struggling to make ends meet or put a roof of any sort over their heads who'd like a bit of such tough luck. That lot's doll is a touch larger than the sub-sub-poverty level to which our job keeper has been slashed, and as government and the caring business class tell us, the thriving economy is incapable of withstanding a pay increase for the lowest of low paid, one caring employer, BHP, for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, has come up with an inspired proposal to encourage investment in resources in remote parts of Troublewazi. 
government incentives. A real role for the inefficient public sector. Little incentives, little handouts like meeting their costs and tax dodges. Well, well, the usual corporate welfare, allowing the super-efficient private sector to create jobs for those ingrate dull bludgers. Got to say, they are super-efficient at getting their snouts in the public purse troughs. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Iceberg supported the state of the economy with Thursday's figures, including unemployment, at a mere 5.6%. Well, plus those have given up. I can recall when a caring business class treasurer, Philip Lynch, said a government couldn't survive if unemployment soared to 5%. Yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, Business Hails Miracle Rebound. Thus, we asked Josh whether the government would now reverse its submission that the lowest of low-paid workers should not get a pay rise in the lowest of low-paid hearing. Of course not. We must oppose an increase in the minimum wage when the economy is in a recession or a prolonged slowdown. Given the continuing uncertain global and domestic economic outlook, higher labour costs during this challenging period could present a major constraint to small business recovery and may dampen employment in the sector. God, this economic business is so confusing, isn't it? Those who do understand are not confused by the delicate flower that is the economy. Notice the Trublawazi Small Business Profits Association has called for temporary workplace flexibilities introduced during the height of COVID to be made permanent uh, so we can be triggered or they can be triggered in future emergencies. Emergencies uh, such as, we asked Supremo Peter Strongarm, the workers, are like workers applying for a pay rise. No need to tell you, true to form, the bloody evil unions oppose this sensible example of workplace flexibility. When does pushed ahead not mean pushed ahead or certainly not mean urgency. Like, finally, when the Nab Your Money Bank is exposed two years ago, underpaying workers, nabbing its workers' pay dating back to 2012, and at least $130 million of theft, or sorry, of, of inadvertent underpayment, and this week's report, Nab Your Money Bank has pushed ahead with payments to thousands of current and former unrepaid staff. Pushed ahead? Two years later, wonder what they'd call convenient procrastination. Good morning. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. And you're back on Solidarity Breakfast for 3CR. We're what? coming up to 8.30, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, what would we do without Kevin? Fantastic stuff. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and as Little Birdie said, uh, we do need your help. Radiothon's coming up. Uh, uh, through June. Through June. Mm. Yeah, um, community languages programs, 7 to the 13th of June. And then us, general programs, yes. 14 to the 20th of June. So show us that, show us your love. Yeah. yeah. We'll be floating around a lot for that. And um, yeah, of course, we've also got May Day coming up as well, which is only edging ever closer. Um, that'll be really fun. I, I'm looking forward to just spending a day going out to Trades Hall and grabbing audio and chatting with people and... Yeah, hanging around the Ed Hour Monument, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
Loit- loitering for business purposes, as one yeah, does. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, on May the 1st, uh, it falls on Saturday this year, which is great. And uh, there's mm. going to be special programming on 3CR. We're going to kick up our heels. We're going to enjoy uh, and celebrate uh, the workers of yes, the world. We have the, we have the patriotic honour of being the first show for the day that's actually going to air, um, aside from the Stick live. Together repeat. Yeah, live. That's the, that's the key thing. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be going to be awesome. We've got a lot coming up on the horizon. Yeah. Um, and speaking of coming up on the horizon, you have a very fascinating piece with Dr. Matt Landos. Do you want to tell us yeah, about yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I got alerted to something that might have already uh, piqued your interest if you'd been listening to the uh, uh, gardening show we have on Saturdays, on, mm. uh, on sorry, on Sunday mornings. Lovely show as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very popular show. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, they were all talking about something which someone else had alerted me to, which was that uh, chemicals are appearing in the uh, fertiliser bags uh, that uh, are made up of, uh, you know, chook shit and things of that short sort in mm-hmm. horticultural outlets mm-hmm. that are turning out to be less than uh, helpful to uh, the plants that they've been growing. In fact, uh, some plants have been dying. Now, this was uh, 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 alerted people to the fact that uh, there was potentially some issues about uh, the regulation of chemicals in our uh, agricultural sector. And... Um, Recently, there was a uh, investigation, uh, you know, a review of uh, by the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority. That's mm. the group, the APVMA, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, mm. which is uh, commissioned uh, to uh, look at and uh, regulate uh, chemicals within our uh, system. Right. Anyway, uh, Dr. Matt Landos and others have been uh, lobbying and trying to raise people's awareness of the insufficiency of this organisation's approach at the moment. So I I went and sought him out and this is what he had to say. Now, um, it's quite clear that from the concerns that are being uh, expressed about the APVMA, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicine Authority, that there's some issues that are developing around the uh, issue issue of safety for health and other areas in the way uh, chemicals for farming uh, are being um, regulated. Would that be a a true statement? Yes, that's, that's correct. Can you give us, my listeners, some understanding of why you're concerned? Yes, so what, uh, what's been taking place in Australia, as, as in many areas of the world, is there's an ongoing research effort uh, looking at the impacts of uh, uh, agricultural and veterinary chemicals on uh, animal and human health. And this body of work over time is, is accumulating new knowledge uh, which uh, can help better inform uh, whether or not our regulation is safe. Uh, and what we're finding in terms of the summary, if you like, of international research effort is that many of the products which we previously had assessed through our regulator to be safe in the way they were used according to the label, in fact, are unsafe and are causing significant detrimental impacts to our environment 
into human health. And what uh, so we have a essentially a uh, imbalance, if you like, between the speed with which we're learning in a research landscape uh, versus the speed with which we're changing regulatory policy to reflect that knowledge uh, in a, a regulatory landscape. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there's concerns that have been expressed about the perhaps a lack of independence in regards to the uh, APVMA and um, the chemical industries, in fact, themselves. Yes, yes, that's that's correct. There's there's been concerns there spanning a number of years within the APVMA itself, where at times in the past members of the board of the APVMA were simultaneously life members of uh, the lobby group for AgVet chemicals called CropLife. So there was a closeness there that uh, perhaps uh, could be viewed as having a significant conflict of interest whereby uh, the interests of promoting uh, use and sale of chemicals to generate profit for those companies may have impinged on their uh, ability to, to consider safety fully and appropriately within that process. And there's more recently been some concerns uh, in relation to the agricultural veterinary chemical review process that has been initiated by the Commonwealth Government, uh, where the uh, chair of that review, uh, so-called independent panel, uh, was in fact uh, also simultaneously at the time of appointment uh, the chairman of uh, another uh, lobby group uh, advocacy group um, which uh, was set up by CropLife. So he had some strong links to the agricultural veterinary chemical industry uh, which again bring into question his suitability as a candidate to to look at the safety side or the public uh, the public health side of, of this uh, regulatory process one that from a legislation perspective uh, is, is uh, front and centre is that it the point of having the regulator is to protect the public from harm, from exposure to these products. Uh, so it is the very reason for having the regulator uh, is, is about human safety and environmental safety. So having uh, a profit motive built in there in relation to agricultural production uh, does, does not uh, fit squarely with trying to protect public health. Actually, I looked up uh, the organisation that he was part of, Agricultural Biotechnology Council of Australia, and on its um, website it was advertising uh, the official Australian reference for agricultural biotechnology and GM crops on its website. So it was like it, it had already made up its mind about a whole range of things that are still contentious. Yeah, that's correct, and they, they actively are uh, involved in... Uh, lobbying, or their word is advocating, uh, but it's very clear that uh, groups such as their members uh, on that uh, particular uh, organisation include CropLife, who advocate very strongly on behalf of their members, which include Monsanto and uh, and Bayer, which uh, clearly have a profit motive in selling aggregate chemicals uh, to... to, uh, uh, the farming constituents. The problems really here, any are a lack of acknowledgement that the systems we're using for farming are causing problems most directly for our farmers. We're seeing uh, elevated rates of 
uh, health conditions in farmers that we don't see elsewhere. Uh, so the elevated rates of Parkinson's disease are higher in farmers than they are elsewhere. Um, and we, we understand some of the science here. We're, we're understanding that exposures to things like some of these pesticides are linked to induction of things like Parkinson's disease. But it's a much wider problem than that. We're seeing induction of uh, multiple different types of cancer, including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, associated with pesticide use. So occupational exposure in Australia leads to a significant increase in the chance of you getting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, we're seeing it also in relation to fertility. We're seeing declining fertility across Australia and, uh, and these are serious and uh, expensive impacts on the Australian public health system and on individuals as well. The uh, science is also being challenged, the methodology that's being used. For example, uh, the... Um uh, the, the pesticides that have been uh, allowed um, into the system uh, are, for example, are not re-tested uh, in the field uh, as they've been used over time. So this is a problem as well, isn't it? Yes, so uh, Australia got close to introducing a more sane system of review for chemicals that would attempt to apply the contemporary knowledge um, uh, intermittently as a review process with a chemical. And this was the notion that uh, really we, we ought to accept that with time we learn more, and when we learn more, we should apply it. Now, this type of review process is in place already in Europe and in the USA and elsewhere, but in Australia we have no mandatory review process for AgVet chemicals. We do have a semblance of a review process whereby our current regulator, the APVMA, can... Uh, schedule a review when they receive information which they consider to be sufficient uh, to trigger a review. However, what we've seen from their performance is that these reviews can take 10 or even 15 years for them to complete, to, for them to complete. and legislatively they're actually in a corner because they are required to explore every single mitigation measure before removal or deregistration of a product. And so what we see is that different measures are tried and then at more time elapses where the product is still in use. Um, and unfortunately, this translates most frequently to longer periods of harm taking place because the product was in fact unsafe when it first went to the point of even being reviewed. And this is why we end up with a system in Australia that looks very different to the one in Europe where we maintain a whole lot of old chemistry that is clearly known to be dangerous to human health and dangerous to environmental health, but we continue to use it here in Australia. And so it continues to cause the very problems that we understand now in science it's likely to do. Now, you're, you're the Director of Future Fisheries Veterinarian, um, and uh, so when we're talking about the toxicity of pesticides, uh, we're talking about the environment, we're talking about human health, and we're talking about our waterways, aren't we? That's right. So what we understand increasingly, and as we've developed better methodologies for testing uh, agavet chemicals, we're able to find where they move to after we apply them. And what we're finding uh, is that, in fact, they don't stay put. They don't stay on the paddock where they're applied, and they don't just break down there and disappear to nowhere. What happens is when, when uh, they're applied, first of all, depending on 
the weather conditions of the day. Some of them may end up on target and uh, hitting the pest or the weed are intended to target. However, with uh, vaporisation and with wind, many of these spray particles can move off-site and end up in places they weren't intended. And then we have the aspects of rainfall, which bring the movement of these pesticides both into groundwater and into surface waters as they run off from the landscapes. So we now have a situation where every single waterway that uh, has agricultural uh, land on it is contaminated with pesticide. There are now no uh, waters in Australia that do not have pesticide entering them uh, as, as a result of the movement of these applications on the landscape. The levels are quite variable that enter the landscape and they do reflect the weather patterns and the, and the use patterns on the landscape. But what we're, what we're beginning to appreciate is that the levels that we're seeing in many of these areas, including critical areas that we, that we uh, hold dear, like the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon, we find regularly levels that are higher than that which is viable for the, uh, the precious aquatic life that lives in some of those ecosystems. So we know that we're doing harm, but we're not changing our behaviour. We're just continuing to apply it and continuing to hope that something will be okay in the end. The problem here is that there's no happy ending. Well, um, it came to the fore recently with uh, quite a, a very interesting development, which was that uh, the uh, manures that people were buying from uh, horticultural outlets were actually killing their plants in a domestic setting. Yes, this is uh, another demonstration that we have no, no real control over where these products go after they have been used. And so in this instance, there were, it seems, a number of uh, sources of compostable waste being brought together. But there are no controls over that waste necessarily uh, being free from agricultural chemicals or having had a sufficient period of time elapse after spraying before those materials are then incorporated into compost and redistributed elsewhere into uh, various gardens. So we create these other exposure patterns which really are not a part uh, or have not been considered in any wholesome way in the regulatory process. Um, clearly these sorts of things shouldn't happen it's a reasonable expectation that people who buy compost to put on their vegetable garden don't kill their seedlings with it due to herbicide. It seems quite a reasonable position for the public to have. But we don't have a system which ensures that will happen. Well, obviously, if it's in chook manure and in other kind of manures, it's also in the food chain, <laughs> one assumes. Well, that's right. So with these products... Uh, we see agricultural chemicals also uh, in our foods and we have a system for establishing residue limits on uh, produce. This system uh, seeks to incorporate uh, some of the knowledge about what are the risks if a small amount of residue is consumed at what might be an acceptable daily intake level in a person. Um, however, uh, this, this science is rapidly showing itself to be uh, not, not, it's not fulsome enough. It doesn't include enough of what we understand about mixture toxicity in that people don't get exposed to chemicals one at a time. 
uh, we get exposed to many different agricultural and indeed industrial chemicals simultaneously in our daily lives. And there are interactions that we now understand between many of these compounds that can cause additive reactions of toxicity, whereby a small amount, if that was all that you were exposed to, may indeed have no adverse health impact on you. However, if you have a sustained exposure to multiple chemistries at very low levels, you do see impacts to health, impacts to fertility, impacts to risk of developing diabetes, risk to mental health, development of depression and neurodegenerative diseases of humans. So we understand now that mixture toxicity is a real problem and particularly a real problem with our hormone systems in our bodies. And, uh, and th these are operating on phenomenally low uh, exposures, which are much below often where we're seeing in our foods. Now, this has an economic uh, consequence. It's already having economic consequences for Australian um, uh, agricultural product. Uh, for example, uh, India, uh, there are c chemicals that we use that are banned in other places. Yes, that's right. And some of our produce can no longer enter certain markets of the world due to the residues of the compounds that we use. So this is limiting Australia's export opportunities for our farmers. And, and for some, that may, may not be an immediate issue where there is still a market for us to sell into. But uh, really looking at this from a much broader perspective, we, we are foolhardy as a civilization to continue down the road of this method of food production, whereby we are continuing to cause significant harm to our ecosystem and to public health and shift costs simply from agricultural production over onto the public health system. So these costs are not being borne by agriculture. The costs are being borne by the public health system in having to treat the people that become impacted. Also, the environment, That's right. the environment being degraded. Um, tell me, it's not, it, it, it doesn't have to be this way, does it? There are answers to this. Look, there are, there are a multitude of uh, opportunities here to, to modify the way in which we produce food. Uh, it does require a, a significant rethinking uh, at, the, at the level of national leadership here of how we produce food. And we do have uh, many of the pieces of the puzzle for modifying the way in which we produce food to have a far, a far lesser impact on ecology and a dramatic reduction in impact on human health uh, through, through techniques including regenerative farming, um, through implementation of some of the uh, organic methods of farming uh, food. These are uh, sound practices and, and uh, that, that allow us to still produce uh, significant amounts of food uh, but do not focus solely on the profit motive for generating a profit out of uh, the production of food at any cost to the environment. Uh, I must say that the, the APVMA is being used as a band-aid uh, to give people this sense that uh, our uh, Australia is being scientifically uh, uh, responsible, but in actual fact, it's not um, not credible, really. Well, the the interestingly, in the current review that's underway, 
the uh, the panel uh, uh, spoke of this in terms of the social license that they considered existed for the use of pesticides. I'd leave the public to have some sense of thinking that these things are okay uh, because uh, of the regulatory process being uh, considered to be uh, world-leading or equal to world's best standard. But there are some uncomfortable truths in here that we are far from the world's best standard of regulation. Uh, this is not something, unfortunately, that the panel were willing to ventilate to the wider public. And unfortunately, the measures they proposed, which were largely a, dereg a deregulatory agenda, did nothing to actually improve the safety outcomes that might come from having a, regu a regulatory system uh, that sought to protect the public and the environment from uh, impacts due to the use of these products. So the social licence issue is the one that exists. I'm not really sure that the Australian public ever voted uh, on the idea of uh, handing out a social licence for the use, the widespread use across the landscape of these compounds. We've seen very recently, even in the last couple of weeks, another scientific paper looking at the global level of landscape impact from pesticides that showed many areas of Australia having some of the highest risks for residual levels of pesticide in the soil and water above that, which would cause ecological harm. And ecological harm perhaps sounds somewhat whimsical, like it won't impact us, it won't uh, alter our lives or the future. But in fact, it's the ecology that we live within that supports our very existence. And so it's foolhardy to be degrading that and uh, losing biodiversity as we go here. Well, yes, um, scientists do tend to uh, be calm, uh, appear to be calm, but uh, the words that are, uh, those types of words actually should be uh, setting alarm bells off. Yes, when we talk about the APVMA, we're, we're, we're often using terms about risk. We say we're going to risk assess a chemical or that these things are risks. But what we're really talking about is how much harm we're willing to permit. How many people, how many farmers are willing to shorten their life through uh, impacting their health with lymphoma? This, this is the actual outcome of choosing to apply biocides into the landscape, is that we impact on the productivity of our fisheries. How many commercial fishermen are willing to put out of business so that we can have a minor increase in yield on a crop these are the actual things we're trading off against each other when we make these decisions at the national level to permit widespread biocide application into our environment. Lenny, I think the opportunity to try and uh, shift into the uh, production of food through other means and looking more holistically at uh, what food production is needed for and what food, uh, what, what is the price of food that we're willing to pay might lead to some more mature conversations rather than focusing on continuously on least cost food where all of the uh, externalities uh, are, are sent out as environmental costs or public health costs. If we do proper accounting and we include our loss of natural capital, which our current industrial farming systems are triggering, we need to understand that we cannot run down the planet's natural capital continuously without also running our civilization to its very end. 
that we must see a change, and that change can be brought about through better better accounting, whereby the public health costs are in fact brought into consideration for the assessment process of whether or not it's a good idea to apply these sorts of products onto our landscape and onto our food and to take a far more cautious approach. You can see that Australia as a country is somewhat cavalier in the way it approaches these problems. We've seen it again most recently with the COVID vaccine. You can see in Europe when they first saw a clotting defect uh, appear at an unusual rate in some of the people being vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. They immediately stopped the rollout, immediately, until they could try and sort out, do we really have a problem here? They stopped vaccinating people. The response in Australia on the day that it was stopped in Europe was the complete opposite. They said, there's no problem here. We see no problem. Roll on with the vaccination. We're very confident in AstraZeneca. And now, tail between legs, a couple of weeks later, we see the government now advising the people of Australia if you're under 50 not to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. This is the cavalier attitude that prevails in Australia and needs changing. We need to be conservative, truly conservative, cautious about the impacts of applying these products because what we know from the science is the changes and the impacts we're making to human health are not just about this generation but are causing impacts across generations. They're changing the functionality of the human genome. They're changing our immunity and they're changing our fertility. And these things uh, ought to be considered very soberly before we start uh, applying them to the environment. And that would lead to massive change, I believe, and a, a change for the good. And that's the end of the program. If you weren't sobered by that, I don't think anything will sober you. <laughs> Great way to end as well. Um, till then, we'll see you next week. Stick around for Asia Pacific Currents, which is coming up in about three minutes or so. Two shakes of a lamb's tail. Yeah. See you next week. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.